You're listening to another great podcast in the MyMac Podcasting Network. Hi, folks, and welcome to episode 39 of the Let's Talk Photography podcast. I'm your host, Bart Bouchotts. Uh, joining me today is no one. So usually I say joining me today is blah, blah, blah. But no, it, it's just me and you today. Um, so this is something we haven't done before, a show where it's it's just me talking to the audience, but it may or may not work out. And actually, this is probably a good reason to reflect a little bit on the structure of the show itself before we go any further. So back in late 2013, I started two monthly podcasts, Let's Talk Apple and this show, Let's Talk Photography. And in those three and a little bit years, Let's Talk Apple has, well, it's sort of, it's gelled together. It's become a thing that I think works well. It has a set structure that we do every month. And it, I don't know, it, it has come together and it works. And I wish I could say the same about this show. Um, it, it, it hasn't, it hasn't settled into a vibe in the same way that the Mac show has. And actually, if I'm completely honest, about halfway through this year, I actually toyed with ending the photography show. And then I sort of imagined what life would be like if I didn't get to talk about photography once a month, and I decided that ending the show is a terrible idea. So instead, what I'm doing at the moment is I'm experimenting. Um, I don't know what the final format of this show is going to be, and maybe actually, maybe the future of this show is simply that it's always going to be fluid, and maybe that's just what it needs to be. It just needs to be my outlet for talking about whatever photography stuff is making me excited, and sometimes that means me and an interview with a guest, um, as we've done on a few occasions over the last three years, or it might be me with a panel, or maybe in future there'll be more of this just me and you, it's just the audience and me talking about something. I say, I don't know. I mean, this is an experiment today. This may turn out to be an absolutely terrible show, in which case I do apologise, um, or it may work well. Um, so I guess the first thing to say is, if you have any suggestions for the show, or actually, probably more usefully, critiques, what works well and what doesn't work so well about the show, because then I can focus in on the things that work well and try to deal with the things that don't work so well. And as I say, at the moment, my thinking is that this show is going to remain a mix sometimes when an idea strikes me that really would work well as a panel discussion. Well, I'm going to call in, you know, a panel together. Sometimes I'm going to want to talk to an interesting person and then I'm going to have an interview show. And maybe sometimes I'm just going to have something on my mind that I want to share. And in which case, we're going to do a one to one show like this one. So that's what I'm thinking. So that's what I'm expecting will happen over 2017 as we move forward. Okay, so now that I've set the scene a little bit, what do I want to talk to you about this month? Well, this time of year, regardless of whether you're in the Southern Hemisphere or in the Northern Hemisphere, if you're somewhere in the English-speaking world, then the chances are that you have some holidays at the moment. You know, maybe you you celebrate Christmas, maybe you don't, but the chances are you're not at work. So you have some time to yourself, which means that you can play around with photography, perhaps at times of the day that isn't practical when you have work in the morning. In other words, maybe you can go around and play with your camera at night. So, as I say, it doesn't really matter which hemisphere you're in. There is cool stuff in the night sky at this time of year, whether this be midwinter or midsummer for you. So I, I guess I want, I'm hoping what I'm going to do in this one-to-one chat with you guys is inspire you to go out and play around with your camera at night. And it doesn't really matter what kind of camera you have. You'll be able to achieve something. Um, how far you can go, exactly how cool of things you can do is is going to depend on your equipment. But 
everyone can do something. Uh, so I guess the, the first thing to say is the more manual control you can take of your camera, the further along this journey you're going to be able to go, the more and the cooler of things you're going to be able to do. So maybe your camera only allows you to, maybe just doesn't give you much control at all, in which case you, you can play around with some stuff, but then you're going to fall short. So in an ideal world, what you'd like to end up with is a camera where you can manually set all three legs of the exposure triangle. So the ISO, the exposure, and the aperture at the same time. So you should be able, if you can take control of those three things, that is a big advantage, but not entirely necessary. Definitely makes life easier if you can. It also would be nice if you could take control of the white balance. Uh, and if you can take control of all of those things, then actually you can do a lot. Now, the, the final the, the final thing your camera may or may not allow you to do is sort of to take, like, uber control of the shutter speed. So a lot of cameras will let you dial the shutter speed to a particular number within a given range, and usually that's 30 seconds on the high end up to, like, a four thousandth of a second or something really, really short on the other end. Now, if your camera will only allow you to do that, you can still do cool stuff, but you're going to run into a limit. Whereas what... In an ideal world, like the, the perfect camera for playing around at night time has something called bulb mode. And this is effectively infinite exposure. So with bulb mode, you press the shutter once to open the shutter. And the shutter will then stay open until you press the button again, until you close the shutter. So you then get to time your exposure however you like. So if you want a 10-minute exposure, well, you can do that with bulb mode. Or maybe you just want a 45-second exposure. You may want the help of a stopwatch or something. But if you have bulb mode, you, you can control that exposure ad infinitum. Now, the night sky is challenging for two reasons. So the first reason the night sky is challenging is it's dim. There is simply not a lot of light there. So if you're going to capture that light, then it's important that your camera be sensitive to it. So either you have a camera that's good in low noise or you expose for a long time. They're, they're sort of your two your two choices. Be very sensitive, or just wait a long time. And somewhere in between is going to be some sort of balance between those two things. The other issue, which unfortunately really gets in the way of the second half of that, well, just expose for a long time, the other problem is that the Earth spins. The Earth rotates on its axis once every 24 hours. And that means that... All, everything in the night sky is moving. Now, if you have a very wide-angle lens, what you're doing is you're minimizing that movement. But the more you zoom in, the more you magnify that movement. So what that means is that, yes, the Earth is always turning, no matter what type of lens you have in your camera. But if you put on a wide-angle lens, you're making the movement slower, therefore allowing yourself to expose longer. But if you put on a telephoto lens, you're actually speeding up the movement. Now, there's another interesting thing that goes on as you change your lenses. So if you have a wide-angle lens, you're taking the light from a large area of the sky and compressing it, compressing it effectively, so everything is brightened. But if you have a telephoto lens, you're taking, the air, you're taking the light from a small area of the sky and stretching it over a bigger frame, so everything is dimmer. So what we're getting to is that the more you zoom in the more difficult life gets for you as a nighttime photographer so the wider your field of view the longer you can expose and the brighter your image will be even if you don't get to expose for a long time so it is definitely easier to take wide angle nighttime shots than to zoom in and get detail on things small parts of the night sky
So again, depending on your equipment, you may be well able to do a shot of a constellation and have no chance of doing a shot of something smaller. And that's perfectly fine, right? So just bear that in mind. So the other thing you're almost certainly going to need for this kind of stuff is a tripod, because if you can't hold your camera still, even a one-second exposure is impossible. So definitely some sort of tripod is absolutely in order, if not a tripod, something that has the same effect as a tripod. So, you know, by all means, you can improvise. So a bean bag is perfectly sufficient. I think Antonio has told a story many times about how he simply put his camera on the roof of his car, pointing up into the night sky and left the shutter open for a few minutes. And like that's a perfectly good tripod, right? That camera is not moving, so all will be well. Another thing that will be nice to have, but there are workarounds, is some sort of remote for triggering the shutter without having to touch your camera. If you touch your camera, you're going to get it jiggling. You're going to make it shake. So, okay, you have bulb mode. You walk up, you click the shutter, everything shakes a bit. Then you expose for a minute or two, and then you click the shutter again. The chances are you're going to introduce a, some fuzziness into your image simply by the shake of pressing the shutter twice. So in a much better situation would be to have a remote. So you use the remote to open the shutter and the remote to close the shutter. And that way you don't introduce any jiggle into the camera. But again, there are ways around this. So maybe your camera only allows you to do a 30 second exposure, which means you can still do cool stuff uh, and you don't have a remote. Okay, well then use the timer feature. So the timer feature is where you press the button, then nothing happens for X amount of time, which is designed for you to run into a portrait or whatever. But you can use it in this case to stop stuff shaking. So you just fire off the timer. Your camera will jiggle for a bit, but by the time the shutter actually fires, the jiggling has stopped, you're going to have a nice, sharp image. And so it, it should work out fine for you. So again, more manual control, better. And the night sky spinning... It's always at your, always against you, so wide, easy, small, not so easy. Now, the obvious thing here, of course, as well, the final obvious thing in terms of kit is the brighter your lens, the easier your life will be. If your lens is an f1.4 or something spectacularly bright, well, okay, you're not going to need a long exposure because you're pulling in an awful, awful lot of light. Uh, but just because you don't have an f1.4 lens doesn't mean you can't play. The thing is, what you've got to do then is expose for longer. And then again, okay, so the more you're zoomed in, the harder that becomes. So yes, it is nice to have a lens that's really bright, but you don't need to have a lens that's really bright. In actual fact, the lens that I've had the most success with at nighttime shots is not a particularly bright lens. It's an f4 point, I think it's 4.6, definitely an f, at least an f4 lens, it might even be 4.6. But the thing is, the 10 millimeter wide angle lens. So what that means is I'm able to do on that lens without any sort of problems with motion in the sky, I'm able to do a 45 second exposure. And so, yeah, the lens isn't particularly bright, but it's a really wide angle field of view. So everything is sort of brighter anyway, because I'm not stretching a large amount of a small amount of sky over a large frame. And I'm shrinking the motion of the stars, so I get to expose for longer. So that all makes up for the fact that I only have an f4 point something lens. So again, everyone can play along. Okay, so that's some of the big picture stuff, but maybe we should get a bit more specific. So what can you actually try to photograph? So the first subject, which is by far the easiest one that everyone could play along with, is the moon. And the absolute easiest thing in the world to do with just a little bit of preparation is simply to include the moon in a landscape shot. So don't even try to zoom in. 
just allow the moon to be a small feature in the sky above a beautiful landscape of some sort. And really, the only thing you need for that is a little bit of preparation. So you're going to need to find a landscape where it is conceivably possible for the moon to be over. Now, the moon, like the sun, will rise in the east, move to the south and set in the west. So if if you have a beautiful landscape that you would like the moon to appear in and it is north-facing... Never going to happen. The moon is never in the north of the sky. So ideally speaking, the south of the sky, the moon will be high. If you want the moon low in the sky, then you're talking about sort of southeast, southwest sort of direction. And then the other thing is simply some sort of astronomy app to show you where the moon is at any given time. And there are loads and loads of these in, be it for Mac or PC. I mean, they're everywhere. Um, and so one I particularly like is a free open source one called Stellarium, which you will find for Windows and for Mac and for Linux for free. And there is an iOS version, which is not free, but it is cheap. I think it's two euros and 99 cents or something like that. Um, there's also, if you want to shell out the books, um, probably the big contender in the field is one called Redshift, which has been around forever and a day. Actually, Redshift is the first app I ever bought on a CD-ROM for Windows 95. I'll give you some idea how long Redshift has been about. But it's not the same app, right? It's been getting better all the time as computers have been getting quicker. So there is a modern, up-to-date version of Redshift for Windows. There's a modern, up-to-date version of Redshift for the Mac. And there's a really nice version of Redshift for iOS. Particularly on an iPad, actually. It's a real pleasure to to play around with with a, a really powerful astronomy app like Redshift. Either way. Whether it's a cheap app, whether it's a free app, doesn't matter what the app is. As long as you know when the moon is going to be in a reasonable position so that you can get yourself in the right place at the right time to have the moon in your shot, press the shutter, hey presto, you have now achieved the simplest level of astrophotography. You have included an astronomical object in a photograph. Now, what you may notice is that you start to hit some dynamic ranges to show... The first time you do this, you may come home and find that instead of the moon being this pretty face in the sky, what you have is a completely blown out white circle and with no detail whatsoever. And that isn't kind of what you want. So what you will find is that what you really want in order to get the moon into a landscape is to shoot in twilight. Because in twilight, the exposure will allow you to get detail on the moon and detail on the landscape in the same shot at the same time. I guess the other option is an HDR style of approach where you expose once for the moon and once for the landscape and then blend them together later in Photoshop or whatever. Also a valid excuse. But if you want to just get the shot in camera, the answer is to shoot at dusk. So then you'll just get that balance. Now, the moon is physically quite small on the sky. So in a landscape shot, it's going to be a small feature. If you want to get the moon big in your image, well, then you're going to need to zoom in again. So you're going to need a telephoto lens. And really, to get the moon any sort of appreciable size at all, you're talking about an effective focal length of at least 200 millimeters. Uh, More is better. Um, But that isn't going to be a frame-filling shot. That's going to be the moon... A decent size within the frame, but not nowhere near frame filling. To get frame filling, you're talking four or five hundred uh, millimeter equivalent. Like you're talking seriously, seriously big lenses, or mount your camera to a telescope and capture that way. That will work too, but that's not easy or straightforward. So, what you while you will get a, the moon in a nice size in a photograph, you won't get the moon to be frame filling. So, what do you do? Well, you want to get something else into the frame too at the same time. Now. In order to get the, you know, you're going to be shooting with a telephoto lens. 
So in order to get something in the frame at the same time, you're going to either need a very tall something or something which happens to be in the sky. I mean, if if you live near an airport and you understand the flight patterns of the airplanes well, you can arrange it so that you are standing in a place where an airplane will fly in front of the moon. Uh, if you don't live near an airport, you don't have a hope. Well, you you have a hope in hell, but a slim hope that a plane will randomly fly in the right place. Whereas if you know where the flight, if there is a flight path near you, then you can get yourself into such a place that everything lines up. But failing that, the answer is to take your photograph when the moon is low in the sky. And that way you have an infinity of things to work with. Now, obviously, if you have a large tower, then low becomes really quite high that gives you more time but moonrise and moonset are the ideal so what you need then is a subject where the moon is at a nice height relative to you in that subject at dusk because you still have that uh, problem that you want the moon to have detail on it and you want your thing in the landscape to have detail on it i guess the other approach is to silhouette one well to silhouette whatever is at ground level i guess with the moon behind it, that could work too. So maybe a gnarly tree or something might work as a silhouette is the other, is the other way to, to get around the uh, dynamic range issue. So knowing when the moon is going to be rising and setting at dusk, that gives you your window of when you want to take a photograph of the moon with something. And then the next question is, okay, so what is there in the east or the west that I can line up to make a nice composition? And that's just a case of knowing your area. So it's very hard to take this kind of a photograph on a whim somewhere you've never been before. But in your local area, you know, okay, I have these western views that could be useful and these eastern views that could be useful. Now use my astronomy app and figure out which dates things line up correctly. Now the moon has a 28-day cycle. You probably don't have 28 days worth of uh, Christmas holidays, so maybe this won't work. But nonetheless, it, it's a nice little project to play around with, is, is to try capture the moon with a telephoto lens, with something else in the shot, at sort of dusk time it, it can result in some very pleasing photographs, and frankly, this is the kind of photography that you don't need very fancy equipment for, because your exposure times are going to be such that you can handhold. No need even for a tripod for this, let alone needing a particularly bright lens or anything like that. This is just something you can do with anything above a camera phone or a point-and-shoot. And maybe if the point-and-shoot has enough zoom, maybe you can even do it with a point-and-shoot. The next sort of obvious step up from taking photographs that include the moon is to take what I would call sort of constellation shots. Big nighttime skyscapes where you're not zoomed in a lot which means that the rotation of the earth is not magnified in fact if anything the wider angular lens you can get for this the better this will work and you can get away with fairly long exposure times here because you're not zoomed in so that means that 30 second exposure times 45 second exposure times depending on quite how wide your lens is is perfectly fine so it doesn't need to be a particularly bright lens and, okay, yes, you're going to need a tripod. No, no matter how steady your hand is, you're not going to hold a 30, 40 second exposure by hand. So at this stage, what you need is a wide angle lens, a camera that will expose for at least 30 seconds, and a tripod. And then you really should be good to go to try to get some constellation shots. Now, I guess another thing to say is that depending on your latitude above, sort of, on the Earth, stars actually move at a different speed, and also depending on which way you look in the sky. So... The pole stars, be they the northern pole star Polaris or sort of the area pointed to by the Southern Cross where the Southern Pole is with nothing of any interest around it, those areas don't move at all. 
they remain perfectly stationary over 24 hours. And the opposite of that, then, is the celestial equator, which is where stars move the fastest possible. So generally speaking, what that means is if you are in the northern hemisphere looking south, the stars will be moving faster than if you were looking in any other direction. And if you're in the southern hemisphere looking north, the same applies. And so maybe if you're sort of at the edges of what your equipment can do, maybe find a constellation of interest that's in the west or better still the north but or south if you're in the southern hemisphere. Uh, and then the stars will move, so you'd actually get a few extra seconds, maybe get away with five or six more seconds than you would have if you were to have picked something pointing due south. Anyway, what you would like is a big picture of the a sort of a region of the sky, maybe maybe a famous constellation like Orion or something, some sort of starscape. In fact, if you're lucky enough to live away from streetlights, the ultimate, ultimate starscape is the Milky Way. I mean, that is absolutely phenomenally beautiful, but of course, if you need two near streetlights, that's out of reach for you, I'm sorry to say. Anyway, regardless of what starscape it is you're going for, the thing to that you'll probably soon realise is that when you process the photograph, a photograph of just a starscape is actually really hard to make compelling. It's just some dots on the screen. So in order to get a compelling image, you actually are going to want something on land, ground level, to go with your starscape. So you're going to want something to perhaps silhouette or perhaps even expose so that it's visible, but you're going to want something terrestrial in your shot. And so that may be a case of the silhouette of some leafless trees at wintertime, or maybe just a silhouette of some trees if, if you're in the summertime, or maybe something like a nice building or whatever, but something on the ground to add interest to your scene. Uh, you can have fun if, if you know, the weather plays ball. Uh, particularly if, if it's frosty, it's much easier to get the ground into your nighttime photograph because, well, the white frosty ground will expose way better than the dark, wet, you know, ground. So if it's frosty weather, you may actually be able to do a nice exposure where the ground is even, like, well exposed. But oftentimes that's not possible. Another thing that can may or may not play ball is some sort of body of water. If if it's still enough, you can actually get reflections of celestial bodies. Uh, this, you know, the moon easily, the planets relatively easily because they're very bright. Getting reflected stars, you need you need to be lucky. You need to have like a, a, a very very still mill pond kind of thing. I mean, any sort of ripples at all diffuse that. But anyway, you can have fun reflections as well. But just something on the ground. So again, that involves some preparation um, and involves getting yourself somewhere nice when it's dark. You definitely want to scout it out during the day. It also actually, all of this the this sort of stuff, because you're now talking about going somewhere at night, which means you need to be prepared. So you need to pack your bag in such a way that you can easily get out all the gear you need without fumbling around in the dark. And also, I would highly recommend that you develop the habit of having a place for everything and everything in its place with your camera bag, because otherwise you're going to come home with less equipment than you went out with. And depending on what it is you leave behind in a dark field somewhere, it may be quite an expensive whoopsie. Anyway, get something from the ground into your shot. Now... You can start to have really good fun at this point if you start to use techniques like light painting or whatever to really expose the ground, um, to, to really get something fully illuminated in your terrestrial part of your skyscape. 
Um, so I would definitely say get a white light torch, um, be it an LED one or whatever. So something that has, you don't want too colorful. So a lot of LEDs tend to be towards the blue ending color. So they tend to make things look cold uh, or they tend to be towards the yellow end, I guess, other torches. So in an ideal world, a white torch, but if you can't get white, you know, and uh, you know, just be in, be aware that you may have a color cast you need to deal with if, you're, if your torch is too far off white. Uh, also, you can so you can use light. You can paint with light into the terrestrial part of your skyscape. But the other option is to actually walk into the frame while holding some sort of light source and to draw, uh, which which can be fun. I mean, it can be a bit gimmicky, but it can also be good fun. So maybe do you know experiment around with a bit of everything. But you definitely need something terrestrial in your skyscape for it to be a compelling, interesting sort of a skyscape. Okay, so everything we've talked about so far has been generic, right? Whether you're in the Southern Hemisphere or the Northern Hemisphere, everything so far applies to you now in December. Uh, And now I'm going to switch modes a bit, and I'm going to talk about some things which are only going to apply to one or the other hemisphere in December. But of course, everything I say about the Southern Hemisphere in December is true about the Northern Hemisphere in June. And everything I say about the Northern Hemisphere in December is true about the Southern Hemisphere in June. So... You know, half of what I tell you now is going to be for six months from now. But whether you're a Northern Hemisphere dweller or a Southern Hemisphere dweller, something I tell you about now is going to be of interest to you. And just because the Southern Hemisphere tends to get short shift so often in the podcasting world, I am going to start at the South. So I'm going to talk about some stuff that is particularly good in long, well, I say, sorry, long summer days, short summer nights. So if you are particularly far south in December, or particularly far north in June, you're going to get into the region where it doesn't really get fully dark. And I say particularly far, it doesn't have to be that far, right? Ireland counts, and Ireland is at, my house is at about 54 degrees latitude north, and that's far enough north for this effect to take place. Basically, if you're at that sort of latitude, 50-ish degrees up or down, or more, then it doesn't actually get fully dark in the summer skies so the sun sets you see the sun set but if you were to stand there all night you would see the sun set and the glow of where the sun is below the horizon would move through the north and then the sun would rise again and at no point would it have actually been deeply fully dark now even if you're a little bit further south at 40 degrees or whatever where it does actually get fully dark for a little bit you're still going to have these very very long periods of half dark Uh, And what happens in these periods is that you on the ground are in the shadow of the earth, but stuff above your head is still sunlit. And that can give some very fun photographic opportunities. So in a sort of a natural sense, there are things called noctilucent clouds. And these are very, very finely detailed, lacy clouds. They are at the absolute, absolute top of our atmosphere. And they tend to iridesce quite beautifully when they are caught by the sunlight and you are in darkness below they will always be if you're in the southern hemisphere they will be along your low to your southern horizon and if you're in the northern hemisphere they will be low to your northern horizon and they are definitely worth keeping an eye out for as i say at that time of day when it's it's dark for you on the ground but there is not 
not for that not that long so that there is still this light really high up in the atmosphere now actually the weird thing about these noctilucent clouds is okay so they are undeniably beautiful but it seems that they didn't exist before the industrial revolution so they actually might just be man-made clouds which is kind of cool and regardless of what they are the one thing i can tell you for certain is that scientists don't really understand them so you can photograph a mystery which is always fun and as i say they're spectacularly pretty things Above noctilucent clouds, outside of the atmosphere, we have filled our sky with satellites. They do all sorts of cool things from tell us what the weather is going to be like, to providing us with entertainment, to spying on people and so on and so forth. But regardless of the type of satellite, you can actually see them. They look like stars that move slowly. So a shooting star streaks across the sky. But these things, they move slowly and gently. And so that is is definitely interesting and definitely different. So you can photograph them as these trails across the sky. So ordinary satellites you can photograph quite easily. There are lots of apps available. There is a great free website called heavens-above.com, which will, you basically, you tell it your location and it will tell you what satellites are visible to you and it'll draw you a little map and tell you, you know, the times and all that kind of stuff. So it's a really cool website. Uh, and there are also apps uh, in the iOS and Android app stores that will predict satellite passes for you. Now, in all of these cases, it's very important to put in your location accurately. Now, before the days of smartphones, that was bloody hard. and involved reading map references and converting Ordnance Survey map references to actual latitude and longitude if you lived in the British Isles. Uh, but as I say, in the days of smartphones, that's very easy. And if you're using a smartphone app, then you just press the button that says, yes, grant this app permission to access my location, and hey, press it, problem solved. So you can watch and photograph plain old satellites, and they're fun. But not all satellites are equal. Some satellites are extra cool. Uh, two in particular that spring to mind would be the International Space Station, which is cool simply in the sense that it is really bloody bright. Um, now, the the International Space Station is not always visible. Its orbit is such that it, wherever you are on planet Earth, you will go through a phase of a few weeks where you see it, and then a phase of a few weeks where you don't see it. So again, in order to figure out whether this is something you can achieve over your Christmas break, you're going to have to check heavens-above.com or an app or something to see whether or not the ISS is in play during the time you have off where you can, you know, stay up late at night and photograph things. Now, actually, in the case of satellites, it's not only Southern Hemisphere people get to play. So in the Northern Hemisphere, just during our normal winter sunset, we still have a window where the the satellites are sunlit, but we're not. But the thing is, for us, this is a short window in wintertime. So maybe for an hour, an hour or two after sunset, we get to photograph satellites, but then our night sky will be fully in the Earth's shadow, even up as high as orbit, and so we can't play along. Whereas if you're in a summer sky, you can play along for hours and hours and hours because the sun is never really far below the horizon, so the satellites do get to stay sunlit. I say we do get to play along a bit in the own hemisphere in this one. So the ISS wins by being just bright. Uh, but there is another type of satellite that is really fun to photograph, and these are called the Iridium satellites. So these were developed to be communication satellites, but not communication satellites in the sense that you have a massive dish on Earth pointing up to this satellite in the sky, which then bounces the signal back down to another massive dish on Earth. We have loads of those satellites up there, and they're not particularly spectacular. These Iridium satellites were designed 
to be used by cell phones. So the thought was that we would never be stupid enough to cover our entire planet with cell towers so that we could use local radio signals. So the only practical way we could possibly have mobile communications would be to have handheld satellite phones. Okay, that was naive. That's not how reality worked out at all, right? You know, flawed theory. But nonetheless, these things are launched. They're in orbit. And because they're designed to work with a handset... You can't have a handset with a 40-foot antenna on it. That would be impractical. So that means you have to reverse things. You have to put a big antenna in space if you're going to have a small antenna on your handset. So these Iridium satellites all have massive dishes pointing down to Earth. And if you're standing in the right place at the right time, they will catch the reflection of the sun. And so they will glint from the sun... And they will brighten to almost, not quite, but almost as bright as the full moon. Just for a second. And so what you will see is ordinary satellite, ordinary satellite, and it will brighten, 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 flash at you, dim, 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 dim. And that whole sort of brighten, brighten, flash, dim, 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 that, that's sort of about a two, three, four seconds sort of time. A short, a short pulse as basically the satellite dish, or sorry, the antenna comes into alignment with the sun and you and then goes out of alignment. Now, if you're not in the very center, you will still see a flash, but it will be a dimmer flash. So the absolute brightest flashes are, if you're into astronomy, it's a magnitude of minus eight. The moon is minus 11. The lower the number, the brighter the thing. So minus 11 is brighter than minus eight. But minus anything is very bloody bright. Um, Again, if you're near the edge of the cone, what you will get is still a flash, but just a much dimmer flash. So maybe only minus one or minus two. Anyway, heavens-above.com will give you predictions. And again, in this case, you're dealing with a very small physical cone of light being projected down onto the Earth as the satellite moves. So effectively, you can think of it as the sun is always bouncing off the satellite dish which means that in any given iridium satellite is always casting a bright light somewhere on planet Earth, which is sort of a cone shape. And the closer you are to the center of a cone, the brighter the flash you'll see as it passes over you. So you need to give your accurate location to get a prediction on this kind of stuff. They photograph beautifully because you see dim line, dim line, really, really, really obvious line, dim line, dim line, dim line. So they're great fun to photograph. And the thing is, there's 70-odd of them up there. So... Every single night during the summer, you are going, guarantee you, there are iridium flares. So it's just a matter of getting the predictions and getting yourself somewhere nice. And again, like with constellation photography, you're going to want something terrestrial in the shot to make it interesting. Okay, so those are some things, I guess. So that's some Southern Hemisphere-only fun. So for us Northern Hemisphere dwellers, we can play around a bit with the satellites and stuff, but not not really, you know, not not for very long at this time of year, just a li- you know for an hour or two after sunset or before sunrise. Um, the other thing we just have no chance of really is noctilucent clouds during during the winter months for us, so we don't get to play along with that. But what we do get, which the Southern Hemisphere don't have right now, is these are the darkest nights. So for us. If you want to have a hope in hell of capturing the Milky Way, this is the time, right? You have long, long, deep, dark nights. So all of the cool constellation shots are very much more in play here because we we just have the darker, better nights. So it's definitely worth when the moon is not in the sky heading out and trying to do as long of an exposure as your equipment will let you get away with 
with as low of an f f stop as your lens will let you get away with basically with as high of an iso as your camera will let you get away with before it becomes horribly noisy and ick and the only way you're going to discover all these things by the way is through experimentation so experiment 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 uh, but we really are in the perfect position to try get pictures of the Milky Way and and the dim stuff in the sky. So that, and we also have way more time. So the Southern Hemisphere have short tonight, so they're going to have to stay up late doing this. Whereas we get to do this kind of stuff in the Northern Hemisphere in December at like seven p.m. You know, and you know, entirely sane and human friendly hours instead of you know, god awful o'clock in the middle of the night. So, yeah, we don't get to do some of the really cool stuff they're getting to do right now. But we'll get to do that in six months' time. And what we have now are long, dark nights. So we can get out and we can have fun before it gets too dark. Now, regardless of which hemisphere you're in, I should also mention that over the Christmas period, in fact, technically in early January, um, we actually have a meteor shower, which is peaking, the quadranted meteor shower. So if you're lucky, whatever astronomy work you're doing now, you may catch a shooting star in your shot as well. So that can be a bit of fun. Something else you can do. uh, So I've been saying that you're trying to fight the rotation of the Earth. You're trying to capture a sharp image of the stars. Maybe, maybe something you can do is the opposite. Maybe you can work with the rotation of the Earth and just do like a 15-minute exposure and get star trails. So point your camera at the north or the south, depending on which hemisphere you're in, at whichever pole. Let it do a, as long of an exposure as you can get away with and get star trails. Now, maybe you can't do that in one. So maybe what you want to do is do 50, 30-second exposures one after the other, and then stack them together inside your image editor of choice, you know, Photoshop or whatever it is you're using, and build up your star trails that way. Um, what you'll find, actually, is if you try to do a 50-second or a 50-minute exposure in one go, no matter what camera you have, noise will just be terrible. So you, if you're going to do a real long exposure, you're probably going to want to stack it anyway. Well, you can actually do without stacking, without getting complicated. You can definitely get away with 10-minute exposures, and that's enough to get star trails. And so maybe that's the answer. Don't don't try to freeze the stars. Let them. Let them, let them trail and have some fun that way. Anyway, I'm hoping that I have... Um, sort of tickled your appetite here and I'm hoping to inspire you to, while you have some time off work, to go out there and try get some photographs of the night sky and, you know, maybe share them, maybe share them with the rest of the community. We do have a Google Plus group. I just don't use it very much and uh, maybe we should do more of that. Okay, um, I'm pretty much coming to the end of uh, what I wanted to talk to you about today. Um... I obviously want to wish you guys all the very best for the holiday season. You know, hoping it's a time full of joy and good food and good company. Uh, more important than anything else, good company, good time with family. So if you celebrate Christmas, very Merry Christmas to you. If you celebrate something else, I hope that goes well for you. And even if you celebrate nothing, how's about a little bit of peace and goodwill to all men? Can't do any of us any harm. Uh, and at a time of year for peace and goodwill and all that kind of stuff, I think it's extra important just to take an extra moment to double thank everyone who has supported this show. So whether you have supported the show simply by saying to a friend, why don't you check out this podcast? That's supporting the show, and that is very much appreciated. Or maybe you left a review in iTunes or somewhere else. That's very much appreciated. Maybe just tweeted about a show or retweeted a show announcement. All of that is supporting the show, and all of that is appreciated. So thank you to everyone who has done 
you know, even that, that, that I, I genuinely appreciate it. Uh, obviously, there are some practicalities to running a podcast. So, you know, time and effort, that, that doesn't count, right? This is not something I do for money. This is something I do for fun. So I don't consider my time to be something that I should be paid for. However, I do need equipment and there are bills to be paid for domain names and so forth. So it's not a case that running a podcast is free, although it isn't that expensive. But everyone who supports the show financially helps me out a a great deal. Um, Where I sort of want to be with podcasting is where it doesn't cost me money. So we're actually getting to the stage now where if I ignore the fact that I need equipment, I'm pretty close to breaking even now. I'd say we're within a couple of, you know, we're within... 10 euro a month of breaking even one way or the other and some months we go over slightly some months we go under slightly so if we ignore the fact that you know from time to time i need to spend money on microphones and software and well computers and things if we ignore the fact if we ignore that which would make me a terrible accountant and i wouldn't do very well making a business plan ignoring such realities but if we ignore those realities and actually we're getting pretty close to breaking even which is amazing um and something I wanted to achieve for a long time. So thank you to everyone who does support the show. So I guess I should say there are at the moment three, and there will soon be a fourth way to support the show financially. So the uh, the single the single most obvious thing to do is to press the PayPal button and to simply throw some money my way, and that is always appreciated. That works best if you do it like you know once a year or something, and make it a substantial amount. By which I mean more than five dollars. Because if you make it less than $5, what happens is PayPal are gone with most of it. Because they, like, of a $5 donation, there'll be about $2 something left over for me, and the rest goes to PayPal fees. Whereas of a $10 donation, there's like $7, there's nearly $8 comes to me. So it's way more efficient. Uh, then the other way to helping the show, which is the way that um, gives me the most peace of mind, is Patreon. So the idea is that you become a patron sort of like in the olden days of the Medici's and so forth, you were patron of the arts, you become a patron of the podcast and you pledge X amount per per episode I get out and I have one Patreon, which means that every month there will be two episodes, a Mac episode and a photography episode. You can't support just one. I guess you can, if you don't like the Mac one and you love the photography one, well, half the amount in your head and then that'll work out, I guess. But basically, the idea is you you pledge a small dollar amount, you know, 50 cent, a dollar, two dollars, maybe five dollars if you're feeling spectacularly generous. Um, but the way it works is that Patreon collect all of those together and then it's one PayPal transaction from Patreon to me at the end of the month, which means it's actually a really efficient way of giving a small amount of money so that the vast, vast majority of your 50 cent or one dollar or two dollars actually makes it to the show and not a lot of it gets absorbed into Patreon fees or PayPal fees. And, of course, it's easy to plan when you have some sort of idea of how much money is coming in. It allows you to budget for things in a way that PayPal donations never could, which is why... I have such a soft spot for the the Patreon patrons. It it really, really does make it possible to keep doing the show that I know that on the 5th of every month, there will be an email from Patreon saying, hi, we have just deposited, you know, usually it's about $78 or something into your account. And it's like, okay, good. I can give that to hosting providers and so on and so forth. So it's, it really helps a lot. Another thing I have, which hasn't really taken off, but I keep on hoping it will, is the Zazzle store. So basically, I sort of, the Zazzle store is a store that sells branded produce. 
uh, t-shirts and that kind of thing, uh, and coffee mugs. Uh, and to some extent, I set it up for a selfish reason because I wanted some branded coffee mugs and things like that, and so I bought them, and I think I'm maybe the biggest customer of my own store at the moment. Uh, but uh, if you do buy something from there, uh, I get a, a small commission back from Zazzle. Basically, I've set it up in such a way that if everything you buy, $5 goes to me. So if you buy a T-shirt, $5 of that is to me, is to the show, and the rest is to is to Zazzle for actually printing the T-shirt and, so, and sending it to you and so on and so forth. And that goes for mugs as well. So basically, I've set it up so that every product has a $5 commission to me, and then the rest is simply the price of the item, which goes to Zazzle. Uh, these things are kind of cool in two regards, I guess. A, you get cool branded stuff. So I've always, uh, the logo was actually donated to me when I set up the podcast three and a bit years ago by a Dutch chap called uh, Gerard Monnen. So thank you if you're still listening. Uh, and I love the logo to bits. Uh, it's a cool shade of green, cool logo, cool fonts. I just, I just love it to bits. And so I just like have the fact that it's possible to have like a nice Let's Talk mug and so forth. But anyway, if you buy one, A, there's a small commission to the show, but B, you become like a walking or drinking, depending on whether you have a mug or a t-shirt or whatever, advertisement for the show. Which means there's the potential of lots of, you know, people saying, oh, that's cool, what's that about? And then you can evangelize the show. So, you know, that's why I bought the, the own brand and stuff. But also any anyone who buys that stuff... It, I, I sort of appreciate it extra for that reason. You know, the, the $5 is helpful, but the fact that you're now an advertisement is, is extra helpful. So now there are the three ways you can support the show for now. And starting in January next year, there will be a fourth way, which is going to apply really only to nerds. But anyway, we'll, we'll talk about that in January. Um, I think I, I don't really have show notes, which is, you may have noticed, has been a slightly rambling conversation. Uh, hopefully it was interesting, though. So I guess... Thank you to everyone. Uh, I was going to say you'll find show notes at less-talk.e, but to be honest, there's going to be very little in the show notes. What there will be in the show notes, though, is I'm going to stick in a link to some of my my favorite astrophotographs that I've taken over the past couple of years, just for the point of view of a sampler of the kind of stuff you can do without particularly expensive equipment. Um, So they'll be at less-talk.e as well as the support the show buttons. Uh, the other thing that I would very much like is your feedback. Um, so there, if you go to Let's Talk, there is actually a form for sending feedback to the show. And particularly given that this is the first time I've done one of these direct, sort of just me talking to a microphone for ooh, about 40-odd minutes. No, more than 40-odd minutes now. Um, maybe this is a terrible idea. Maybe this show is awful, in which case do let me know that this hasn't worked. Or maybe it has worked, in which case, actually, could you please let me know it has worked, because then I might do it again when I'm passionate about a topic. Um, And just, as I say, I'd like to know what works well about the show and what doesn't work well, because it hasn't settled into a pattern. Maybe that's a problem, maybe it isn't, but I would very much appreciate your thoughts. Okay, I'm going to stop rambling now. Thank you for listening. Have a great Christmas. And uh, until next time, happy snapping. You're listening to another great podcast in the MyMac Podcasting Network. Tech Fan Podcast. 
I thought their explanation of it was a little bit weak. A little well. bit weak? Just <laughs> shut up. They said they have a vision. Oh, okay. Or if I'm in my car and the music just wirelessly stops working for no freaking reason, I got to reboot the phone. I'm so ticked off about it. it. It was a piece of junk and no one bought it. I did. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, now you got two of them that are going to fall out of your ear. However good they are, the price is pretty hard to stomach. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait, 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 wait. What they, the hell is going pro- on? Their, their vision is also profit margin. Shove them I as did. far into your ears as you can. Tech Fan Podcast. Yeah.